0: Thank you, Amber, for that introduction. It's wonderful to be back at Calvary today in this pulpit. I was the interim here for a while, and that year I went to every one of these preaching episodes, and I benefited greatly from them. So it's quite an honor among being somewhat humbling and more than a little bit intimidating to be back in the lineup today. It's a pleasure to be with you. I don't think it's too presumptuous for me to begin by telling you that I assume that I know something about each of you as a group of listeners. The fact that you are people who come to church at 12 on 5 on a Thursday puts you in a fairly rarefied category in case you don't know that. That's not normal. I regard you as serious seekers of the truth, as people who in one way or another, like me, have hitched yourselves to a search for God that is shaped by the institution of the church. And a glance around the room also tells me that, again like me, most of you have lived long enough to have experienced both the highs and lows, not only of life, but also the ups and downs of the institutions we cherish the most. A few months ago when I was asked to preach, I I began to think about what I might want to say, indeed what I might be led to say today, and coet thoughts fleeted in and out of my mind as they do. And then, as is usually the case, life intervened in the months in between in so many ways. The result is probably a bit more personal than I might have first imagined. And yet it occurs to me, as it has over the years, that when one has the audacity to stand before a group of his or her peers holding forth about the mystery and love of God, about how God might be or might not be in the world, is inevitably personal, whether we admit it or not. These then are personal ponderings about where we are as people of God, and where indeed I am on the journey. My intention is to make a kind of theological case for a passionate Christian agnosticism as the most promising way to live and flourish in a multicultural and increasingly complex world, but also honestly because it's the only way I seem to know how to think about God. It is the way that brings me closest to who God is, I think. Interestingly, I drew from an old book that's a part of my personal canon. Some of you may have read it or heard of it. The Christian Agnostic, written by a now long-dead Methodist minister from England, Leslie Weatherhead. When he wrote it in the mid-1960s, It seemed pretty out there. And as as I looked at it again, it occurred to me that he, like most of us, can wander into some pretty wacky territory occasionally. But what I also concluded is that the overriding point of his thesis that spoke so emphatically to me 40 years ago as a young adult is as important and maybe more apt today than it ever was today in our alarmingly polarized culture in which certainty seems to be the ultimate litmus test for being faithful, certainty. His take-home point is this beyond our faith, beyond what we say and do believe, most of us in the dark of the night have more questions than we do answers. The blessed assurance of which we sing does not mean that our doctrines give us utter clarity about the nature of God, but rather that they represent the evolving and best of human efforts to comprehend how and where the human and the divine connect. Weatherhead imagined a little mental box in his head. He labeled it, awaiting further light, and put into it those things about which he simply did not know, about which he chose to live with gentle and, I think, reverent agnosticism. Had I written his book, I might have used a different word, agnosticism being one that gets our hour up, not to mention our anxiety. But then my title probably wouldn't have sold as many books as his did. As I age, for good or ill, I confess that my awaiting further light box is growing. In fact, it's chock full. Mostly more than I denigrate it, I marvel at the absolute and detailed certainty that some of our sisters and brothers have about almost everything. I may even envy it. What I know, though, is that I don't have that certainty. I just don't. And yet, the absence of it, at least today, does not seem unfaithful or frightening, but somehow affirming of how big God really is, about how big the Christ of my particular story is, infinite and beyond, and yet somehow also imminent and very intimate. Vocationally, what that means is that I have less and less interest in preaching about anything except the radical love of God, and that I am more inclined to to admire acts of love than I am acts of piety, although, of course, they're not mutually exclusive. Now, as you can imagine, such a position is rife for criticism. If one were to broadcast such wonderings in a setting less generous and forgiving than Calvary's Lenten preaching series, I hope, you might hear things like, you don't believe much of anything, or you're barely a Christian at all, or the the least harsh of them. I don't believe I'd have shared that with anybody. (laughs) That one comes up a lot. And I get all that. But the truth is that that our desire for certainty does not necessarily mean that we have it. And more than that, that even achieving such definitude may be beyond our skill set, beyond our human capacity. And in the end, I do fear that assiduously trying to convince ourselves of such certainty will do more damage than it will good. As a pastor who's been around a while, I have seen broken lives when tightly constructed theological precepts shattered in the face of life. I think we get a little help in all of this from an unlikely spiritual hero. Not sure that Carl Jung has ever been called that before. As far as I know, he's not on anyone's list to be added to our Anglican cycle of saints. But he is reported to have said something that somehow connects to what I'm trying to say, and I've never forgotten it. When once he was asked if he believed in God, he purportedly sputtered, as he was wont to do, Believe in God? I know God. Arrogant? Probably just a little bit. But I think I know what he meant, and I think it's worth thinking about. Knowing and believing may indeed go hand in hand, but I don't think they're the same. Our creeds begin, we believe. To believe in Latin is openor, which means opinion. It's a head word, not a religious word. Credo, on the other hand, is the word I think we really mean and one that was there at one point in the vernacular. It has to do with religious believing. Credo means something like I set my heart upon or I give my heart to. Use those words Sunday when you start in the Nicene Creed and see what it feels like. Unfortunately, in medieval English, the concept of credo was translated as believe, but it actually meant the same as its German cousin, belieben. Which means to love or to pleasure. In early English, then, to believe meant something like this. It would say that we beloved something, that we held it in our heart. If that could have remained the connotation of the creeds, we might have saved ourselves a world of trouble. Wilfred Cantwell Smith, Religious scholar, also now dead. I don't know what it means that everybody I talk about is now dead. (laughs) I'm old, I guess. But he wrote once that the affirmation, I believe in God, used to mean, given the reality of God as a fact in the universe, I hereby pledge to Him my heart and soul. I committedly opt to live in loyalty to Him. He goes on to sadly argue that the idea of belief somehow shifted from trusting the beloved to giving some sort of intellectual assent rooted either in fact or not, often involving the question, did it really happen? He says that Christianity was never intended to be a system or structure of belief in the modern sense. He said it originated as a disposition of the heart. Isn't that lovely? Can you imagine what it would be like if every time the word Christian came into the, the consciousness of someone in this world, what he or sh- he, she thought would be, oh, that's a disposition of the heart. It would have made a huge difference. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan friar and prolific writer that many of you read as I do, recently wrote a piece about the limitation of the creeds. I don't really know how Richard stays out of trouble, but I'm so grateful that he does. His point is a historical one. He says the creeds grew out of decades, and particularly the Nicene Creed, grew out of decades of controversy and discord within the church, developing as broad and roughly consensual theological statements They give definition and cohesion to the Christians who won the argument. But they reflected and they still do a very static view, a specific, time-limited understanding of God and the emerging church. And I'm not sure how well any of that translates into the years since. Inherently, you see... When we say a creed, there is a sense that believing this creed as we are saying it sets us apart from those who do not believe it and that we are only right if someone else is wrong. Not just different, but right. As such, Rohr decries the fact that the creeds never talk about love and they don't. Love, which was at the heart of all that Jesus taught and lived what I can say about the creeds is that honestly they never call forth in me that to which I can most heartily pledge my heart. They don't talk about the things that Jesus taught us about how to live and love in this world. They're great if you want to know who's in or out, but they don't tell us too much about how to do it. One brief example of what I'm talking about is the notion of the virgin birth, and be assured that I'm not about to give an opinion on that. (laughs) But here's my question. In how we live and love, in how we attempt to follow the actions of Jesus, if that's what we're about, what difference does our position on that doctrine or many others like it really make? Jesus either came to teach us how to be radically different in our loving and living, or he did not. Ancient tribal texts subject to the vicissitudes of 2,000 years are to be cherished and read with wonder, but not necessarily through the lens of historical accuracy or of a fact checker. Facts are not the domain of faith. Facts rely upon things that you can prove. Faith relies upon stories and experiences. That brings me back to Hume's particular comment. It is true, I do believe, that in our hearts we can know God. In our case, through most of our cases I expect, through Jesus and the universal Christ. Although scripture creeds creeds and church teachings shape our experience of God, our knowing of God is not confined by words because we make up all the words. In fact, most of us find that in the end we know or don't know God. And that in most moments we are somewhere in that moment where the living of our lives, we're wanting to know God and sometimes we're there and sometimes we're not. But this, I can tell you, no amount of gritted teeth believing I'll believe it if it kills me will bring us to God. I've tried it. We come to God when we realize that God is within us. Years ago, someone gave me a very irreverent bumper sticker which read, I found Jesus. He was behind the sofa all the time. (laughs) In some irreverent way, I think that's what Jesus was trying to say when he kept saying to people, the kingdom of God is within. Look where you are. Look in. Believe that you can know God. Look inside. My grandchildren are of an age where they accept little and question everything, although I'm happy to say they're still adoring and respectful of their granddaddy. When they ask me, as they are prone to do, granddaddy, do you really believe all this stuff? This is how I respond to them. I say, you guys, Christianity is my defining story, and I love it. I love all of it from its most outlandish claim to the most prosaic of them. I've given my heart to it, in fact. It's the way I've been programmed to see and experience and understand the world. That means, on some level, I have to admit it's cultural. I was born in Houston, Mississippi. We had two Catholic families, proud of them. One Irish man married to a Jewish woman who took her children to Tupelo for high holy services every year. And the rest of us were a mix of Protestants, largely Baptist. In truth, in a small town in northeast Mississippi, whether one is Methodist or Presbyterian or something else, there's a lot of Baptists floating around in there, I can assure you. (laughs) And it was okay. It was the water we drank. So yes, I would say to my beloved grandchildren, I believe all of it. And I believe very little of it. And someday, I hope you'll understand that and understand what I mean by it. In the end, I've managed to give my heart to it. After that passionate speech, I note that their eyes have glazed over and we go on to another topic. As I end, in the musical Hamilton, early in the show, Aaron Burr tells Alexander Hamilton, that he should talk less and smile more. That's not exactly what I'm saying, but it's not far off. This is a bit cheeky for a man who's been talking for as long as I have, but I want to tell you this. What I'm saying is that we should talk a little less about what we believe and show a lot more of what we know in our hearts to be true about the love of God whose mercy is wider than our wildest imaginings could ever be. In the name of God,